0: This episode of Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula is brought to you by Oasis Pools and Spas. Outside of summer, you might not spend too much time thinking about your swimming pool, but did you know that this is actually the perfect time to take care of some much-needed maintenance to keep your pool clean and looking fresh when summer returns? In fact, did you know that healthy pool maintenance includes draining and cleaning every five years? Now, how long has it been since your pool was drained and acid-washed? Go on, think about it. I'll wait. Don't freak out, because Oasis Pools and Spas, the Valley's finest providers of pool care service, are offering a seasonal special on acid washes right now. That's right. Fall and winter are the perfect time to schedule an acid wash for your swimming pool. Make sure your pool is healthy, clean, and crystalline this coming swim season with Oasis Pools and Spas. Give them a call today at 480-206-2326. Once again, that's Oasis Pools and Spas at 480-206-2326. And remember to support the businesses that support local arts.
1: I never meant to let this happen.
2: (laughs) What did you do?
3: I'm sorry, I'm so sorry I
0: know. Yabya Music and Arts presents Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula Written by Carly Shorman and Dale Rasmussen Original music and sound design by Devin Morris. Executive producers Carly Shoreman and Mark Anderson. Episode 1 The Bittersweet Goodbye.
4: I've always tried to steer clear of trouble. No matter what you might think after the story I'm about to tell you. And I might as well tell you all of it. Since you're going to find out anyway. At this point, with things the way they are, I figure there's not really a point in trying to keep secrets. You'll find out what you want to know. Someone always sees something. Some bum in the alley across the street. Some lousy gambler who wears his cards on his face, but still figures he's long overdue for a hot streak. Some pretty young thing who's not so pretty or so young anymore. Looking even a score because I didn't bite on the hire. Or maybe because I did. Or because I took her to bed. Or because I didn't take her to bed. Step outside this bar, throw a rock in any direction, and you're bound to hit someone who'll blame me for the bruise. That's what happens when you're popular everyone hates you eventually. So since you'll find someone to tell you anyway, I may as well do it myself. At least I can tell the truth about it. And if I can't do that, I can at least tell what happened. So the broad strokes. Maybe I wasn't born Nolan Stone, but it's been a lifetime since anyone's called me anything else. Still, I get asked often enough if it's my real name. I almost wished I'd picked a different one. Some folks have dreams. Some folks have love. Some have plans for tomorrow. I have this place. I've run this bar for the past 19 years, and I'm proud of it. Drinks and dining in the front, cards and games in the room to the right, live music and dancing through that door on the left. Upstairs, you'll find some quiet rooms to converse in, and scattered liberally throughout the establishment, attractive and available young men and women eager to share in the pleasures of your company, at the bar or up the stairs, depending on the weight of your wallet and the shine of your smile. I named it Salome's. It's a great place for good men to lose their heads. You know, I've been telling that joke for nearly two decades now, but it still draws a laugh from the new visitors. So where was I? Salome's. Right. Like I was saying, drinks and dinner, music and dancing, maybe something a little wilder if that's what you're looking for. But don't start thinking I run some sort of dive for dark dealings. No, Solomay's is class from top to bottom. Instead of the stale, overly dry air that had been coming straight out of the station's scrubbers for three generations, I poured a half year's pay into a secondary filtration system and not only increased the oxygen concentration in the building by one percent for some added bounce, but also added the scent of vanilla and orchids native to chloris. A perfumer on Athenia whipped up the aroma for me, and it took three expensive tries before he perfected the planetary air smell I had in mind. On top of that smell were the perfumes the girls wore and tucked down underneath the bedrock scent of old leather from the booths in the lounge and racks of liquor from Two Dozen Worlds. I could pass the day describing the way Salome smells but I guess it will have to suffice to say that, to me, it smells like home. For others, it's a place to feel safe in dangerous times. And dangerous in safe ones. A place to feel young when you start to feel old or seasoned, even when you're still a little green. A place to feel lucky until you'd lost everything but the cost of a room upstairs and a woman will make you feel lucky all over again. Now maybe the stockyard isn't the nicest of neighborhoods, like over in the Memorial District where the heads of state meet for drinks in the evening to discuss interplanetary politics at Brookston's Brown. Doesn't matter to me. You see, when the agreements are struck, the hands are shaken and the press photos have been taken, they all come here. The winners to celebrate, the losers to grouse, and all of them to make the kinds of deals they hope don't get headlines. Hell, the stockyards might not even be as inviting as the tower sect, where you can find the station's docks and a staggeringly cheerful capitalist assault meant to entice the tourists and the idle lifers in search of new trinkets from places like Plutus or Anasa. Regardless of what you might be looking to buy, you're guaranteed to find something you've never seen before. But whatever you might have to say about the stockyard, for location, you can't be beat. You almost can't get from one point in the station to another without passing by the district and at its heart, Salome's. sometimes it feels like it's not just the station passageways, but like every road in this galaxy passes by these double doors. We get saints and sinners in here in equal measure, and we pour their drinks measured equally. I'm not in business to make judgments. As far as I'm concerned, if your ancestors came to this sector on one of the seed ships during the Exodus, you're welcome in Salome's, as long as you follow the house rules. Don't kill anyone. Don't steal anything. And don't be a dick. Yeah, sure, we might have ripped off the rules from the Coalition of Independent Colonies, But you know what they say about storytellers. The good ones borrow. The great ones steal outright. Anyway, that night. I like to think that every evening at Salome's is an event, but there was something different in the air the night this whole mess started. Even before the doors opened, you could feel the energy was different. The bartenders, the entertainment... Even the hosts and the bouncers radiated positivity. They were all smiles and almost vibrating with that kind of hum people make when they're happy and working hard without even realizing it. I should have known then that we were in for trouble. It was a going away party. One of my courtesans was getting ready to put Salome's and Outfar Station on her six for good and against my better judgment, we were giving her a send-off to rival Accords Day. But as hard as the bartenders were working, the consorts were putting them to shame. Everywhere you turned, one of the Charlies was up on a ladder hanging a banner, or a gang of malls were zipping around rearranging flowers, every one of them wearing a smile nearly bright enough to trigger the solar flare filters. One of their own was making good, off to see what kind of future she could build for herself. Not on Alfar Station, and not on her back. If any of them were raw or jealous, they were hiding it well. In fact, as I stood in front of the bar, their cheerfulness and endless scampering around the room was just starting to lose their endearing quality. Hey, don't mind me, I just own the place.
1: Sorry, Nolan, I couldn't see you through these balloons. Well,
4: how could you? You must have a couple of dozen. You sure that's going to be enough?
1: Lil's bringing up more from storage. Don't worry.
4: Don't worry, she says. You know, later tonight when one of those things gets sucked into the scrubbers and we all asphyxiate in here, I hope you'll hold tight to that sunny mood.
1: Until my last choking breath, boss. Promise. Say, have you seen Teddy? I heard that he was planning on jazz later, and I think he might have forgotten that Cherry hates jazz. Unless it's that Thalian kind. With yeah, I'm going to
4: the- cut you off right there, Contessa. One, I don't want to have the argument we're going to have if you call that Thalian garbage with the chanting jazz. And two, because I've told they you all a thousand times, I'm not awesome involved champagne. in planning this party. You're lucky, and talk me into talk letting talk you have it. have it. I know. No, you are. And since Zara's to blame for this whole thing, go talk to her about what Teddy's gonna play. I've gotta get ready for the people who actually pay me to drink here, as opposed to the ones who are apparently drinking all my champagne on salary.
1: Sure thing, boss. Sure thing.
4: The band hasn't started playing yet, and we haven't opened the doors, Winston. There's no need to shout. I had more champagne brought up earlier this afternoon.
5: Really? I only see the five cases Only?
4: How much champagne does that girl plan on drinking tonight?
5: Well, I know Cherry's a fan of the blue stuff. I think the idea was everyone else was going to be drinking it in her honor.
4: Really? Well, no, that's a lot of people drinking the expensive stuff tonight. Maybe we should have these going-away parties more often.
5: Well, I wouldn't know Never about- mind, Winston. Have one of the
4: boys bring up two more cases. Yes, sir. Three. Three cases, Winston. And another two for the rooms upstairs. But if the malls and the Charlies swill it up faster than the clients, they can remember how much they like tap water.
5: That's pretty much our entire stock.
4: Cherry's one of our most popular entertainers. I wouldn't be stunned if half the station wandered through here tonight.
5: Okay, you got it, boss.
4: Winston marched off. I could tell he was dubious about moving the champagne, but he kept his opinions to himself and that's for the best. When it comes to this bar, I'm generally only interested in opinions that align with mine. And don't get me wrong, I might hear you out, but in the end, my word goes. Hey, Nolan. Oh, now what?
0: Word from Darius up front. He says there's a guy in line outside who keeps trying to slip the front door. Every time they cut him off, he drops your name. Says he needs to talk to you. Supposedly, it's important.
4: Important? What guy?
0: I guess it's that little fella, Dietz?
4: Well, if it's Dietz, it's definitely not important. We're opening the doors in less than 20 Ms. He can wait. Send word to Darius to keep him quiet, Esme, and if he won't keep quiet, he needs to kick rocks.
0: I'll tell him, but he said the guy was acting weird.
4: Dietz is a junk chain. The only time he isn't smacked to his eyeballs is when he's in the cryotentiary. I'll be concerned the day he stops acting
6: weird.
0: Should I just have Darius get rid of him now?
4: No, his kopecks have three corners, just like everybody else's. He's welcome in, as long as he remembers how to act like he's been somewhere.
5: Hey, Mr. Stone. One of the girls wanted me to ask you if you had some Oh, that's it. That's enough. I'm going up to my office. The next
4: person who talks to me instead of Zara about this damn party is looking for a job tomorrow. I don't want to hear any more about balloons or champagne or Cherry. Viola. Yeah, boss. Tell Cherry I want to see her in my office.
0: Oh, sure. (laughs) I'll send her up as soon as I see her, Mr. Stone.
4: I... All right, Viola. Thank you. As a typical rule, courtesans aren't known for blushing. But as I watched Viola saunter away, she turned a shade typically reserved for sunburned lobsters. I couldn't imagine what I'd said to provoke that. Especially... When I know that particular number, had personally inspired some of the raunchiest water closet limericks on the station. But I was busy, and the mystery didn't stick with me any longer than it took to shrug. I climbed the stairs to the second floor, walked past three of the visiting rooms to my office over the bar, where I opened my desk drawer and removed a small bronze box. I laid it on my desk and thought about what was inside. How happy and how... Miserable, it made me every time this box was opened, and how it never got any easier. I was reminiscing about the last time, when there was a chime at the door. Come in. The door retreated into the frame at the sound of my voice, and there she was on the other side. Not quite tall, but taller than most women and slender as the reeds that grow on the lazy stream where I'd swim in the summers as a kid. Strawberry-kissed hair was piled high in what was either a sloppy bun done masterfully or a complicated bun done sloppily. She wasn't yet made up, but she had those green eyes that threatened to swallow you like a Venus flytrap. Evening gowns are customary, and Cherry had finery that could compete with any wealthy planet-dweller. If memory served me, she had a fondness for plunging necklines and a soft shade of blue. But tonight, she was dressed in shabby trousers and an oversized jacket that I wouldn't let a barback wear onto the floor. She looked more like a tourist and not a well-moneyed one, and the effect was momentarily jarring. I was about to remind her that she needed to hurry up if she wanted to be presentable by the time the doors opened when it hit me. She wasn't one of my girls anymore. Sure, maybe technically her shuttle didn't leave until the morning, but just one look told me that, to me, she was already gone. Maybe she felt as awkward wearing the casual get-up as I did seeing her in it, because her first words to me that night were,
1: I feel like I look ridiculous. I had to meet the captain of the ship to finalize our arrangements for tomorrow. I'll be ready by the time the doors open.
4: Ridiculous? No. But definitely different, and you're technically not on the clock tonight.
1: I look ridiculous. I look like somebody's mom. Oh, I look like somebody's wife. Somebody's old wife. You look- I look like one of those frigid hoity-toits whose husbands offer me a thousand kopecks to sneak off station with them.
4: Wait, that happens?
1: Twice a week, at least.
4: You never thought about taking them up on
1: it? Oh, they never actually mean it.
4: And if one of them had?
1: Well, if one of them had, we wouldn't have had a chance to have a going-away party.
4: I got up and moved to my cabinet, pulled out two glasses and a handful of ice cubes. Well then, I'm glad it didn't happen. If you'd have snuck out of here like a thief in the night without saying goodbye, you'd have made Zara cry.
1: Zara wouldn't cry.
4: Oh, like a baby. Crying in bed for days. Drink. She took the rocks glass from my hand and took a solid pull without a grimace.
1: You wouldn't cry if I left without saying goodbye?
4: Well... I get worked up when other people get worked up, so once Zara started in, I'd have been a wreck, I'm sure.
1: Then I suppose it's a good thing that husbands are full of shit.
4: Oh, every single one of them. You sure you want to leave us to find one?
1: I'm sure. There will be things I miss, yeah, but as fun as this has been, forever was never the plan.
4: Sure, but unless I'm remembering wrong, the plan was a few more years at least.
1: It was supposed to have been. And now? Things have changed. Your sister? My sister.
4: I'm sorry. I heard it was sudden.
1: Very. Lightning struck her shuttle outside my parents' farm.
4: Lightning? The atmospheric conditioners didn't catch that.
1: They're not perfect. The storms in the Northlands on Thalia come up quick and mean. There wasn't time for the satellites to realign. Leastways, that's what the folks at the Planetary Authority told my ma. How
4: are you handling?
1: It's strange, really. I hadn't seen Hannah since she was six years old. I've loved the idea of her forever, but I honestly don't know anything about who she was growing up to be. I just... I just feel like I should be sadder than I am.
4: If you hadn't seen her since she was six, I guess that would have made her...
1: Fifteen. She was the baby of the family, and the last one I needed to help.
4: The last one? I knew you were sending money home, but what was it for? You don't know? Should I?
1: Dowries, Nolan. I was sending the money home for dowries for my sisters.
4: Dowries?
1: You have this reputation for being so quick. On Thalia, my family's got a name. Or at least name enough that we couldn't just run off with the first farmhand who stirs the honeypot. But we didn't quite have the lands or the resources to go with our name. Haven't for a long time. So I left and I've been sending back what I could, when I could. One by one, we put together enough to make real offers to some good matches. We won some, lost some others. But my oldest sister got married six years ago, and my sister Eliza, the autumn before last. Hannah was the last. And now that she's gone, I guess it's my turn. And what I saved for her is mine now. It's time to go home.
4: So Cherry Cordial returns to Thalia, planet of her birth.
1: (laughs) No. Cordelia Monroe does. I don't think Cherry Cordial would attract the kind of suitors my folks are hoping for on Thalia.
4: You're good at being Cherry Cordial. You don't have to go back to Thalia. You could go anywhere, really. Anywhere in the known universe.
1: Living on Outfar Station has shown me enough. I'm just ready to go home now. Ain't you got a homestone? Salome's. And no place else?
4: Never needed another one. Don't remember wanting one. Anyway, far as it goes, how are you fixed for money? Do you have everything you were hoping for?
1: Not quite, but I think I'll be all right. I had two more years before Hannah came a marrying age, and Papa had high hopes for her. She was really smart and very pretty, so we were thinking maybe a first family, and that would have met another 6,000 easy. Me, being older, I wouldn't have a shot of marrying one of the first families like she did, not if I had another 10 years to save. But with what I got, Pa can make a solid offer to one of the third families, Maybe even one of the seconds, on the off chance that me and some fella actually take a liking to one another. And who knows? I still have one more night of work. Could be one of those husbands finally makes good.
4: I'll tell you what. While you wait, why don't you add this to your stash? I opened the bronze box and pulled a stack of the tri-cornered bills from inside. Twenty of the gold-leaf ones, worth one hundred kopecks apiece if she'd been hoping to earn 6000 more working for me, this wouldn't make her every dream come true, but it would get her a lot closer to where she'd been hoping to get. I know what you're thinking. Throwing two grand at an employee on their way out the door isn't exactly the standard business model on Outfar. But if I'm telling the truth, there were more than a few weeks over the past nine years that Cherry had brought in more than that on her own, so I could afford to be a little generous. Plus. She'd been a sweetheart, didn't make trouble, didn't make friends who tracked it into my bar. Hell, who knows? Cherry might run across some young buck or a hot little number at the spaceport, wanting to see the stars and wondering how they could afford to pay for the adventure. And if she leaves in a good enough mood, she might point them at my little tavern in the center of Far Station. Recruiting talent is essential in my business. And even if not, what's the old wisdom? You pay them to leave, right? Well, Cherry was leaving, so it was time to pay up. The farm girl who'd walked in here nearly ten years ago would have gasped aloud. But as it was, Cherry barely raised an eyebrow.
1: You sure about all this, boss?
4: Haven't I told you never to refuse a bonus? Cherry's wide smile of gratitude took on a different shade. And her gaze sharpened.
1: So this is my bonus?
4: Not to your satisfaction?
1: I'd heard. Uh, well, I just thought maybe it was something else.
4: Something specific?
1: No, 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 no. It's just that the girl said. You know what? Never mind. It's nothing. Oh,
4: no. Unless you quit before you leave at four, you still work for me. And if you quit, no party. So, as your employer, spill it.
1: Well, boss, it's just that no one faults a baker for eating one of his own loaves of bread now and again, you know? But you never really seem to sample the merchandise around here yourself. And the girls down there know that when one of us goes, you tend to bring us up here first. We just figured, maybe, you know, on a girl's last night, the bonus might be that you give them a memory to take home.
4: That's what they think? Well, yeah. What do they think happens when one of the boys leaves?
1: Well, the boys have their own stories.
4: I see. Well, what you gotta understand, Cherry, is I got a rule. Don't be one of those guys who takes advantage of the folks who work for him. As I took a long pull from my drink, I noticed that Cherry didn't look exactly relieved to be working for such a good-hearted employer. Was it just my older man's ego, or was that disappointment in her green eyes? She took a step towards me and looked up at me.
1: Well, I know you break the rules sometimes, Nolan.
4: She wasn't wrong about my hands-off policy, but I reserved my attentions for the women whose paycheck I didn't sign. Eight million people on this station. It's not too difficult to find a companion who's not in my employ. Or at least, it didn't used to be. It probably still wouldn't be if I had the time for that kind of thing. Truth to tell, my bar consumed most of my attentions these days. And as mistresses go, they don't come much more jealous than Salome's. Still, Cherry was young, without being too young. Beautiful and willing. Alive and here alone with me in this specific oasis of place and time. Was I tempted? Maybe. But as I took another slug of bourbon, the kind you take right before you break a long-held personal rule, my eyes wandered to the clock in my office. The glowing blue hands told me we had less than 20 M's until opening, and there were still hors d'oeuvres to platter, and candles to light, and and Solomay's wins again. I opened my mouth and just barely kept from crushing hers with it. Instead, I said, they're going to call for doors soon. The disappointment had melted away into something far more appealing, but now that look was sliding away too, replaced just for an instant with a Petulance and offense that hinted maybe more of Cherry Cordial's youth was left than she wanted to admit. Then the hurt was gone, and I was looking at the same brilliant working girl smile I'd seen her give a thousand marks before.
1: You're lost, Stone. I need to go get changed. I guess I'll see you on the floor then, boss.
4: And with a wink and another smile, Cherry left me alone in my office. She left the door ajar without me having to ask. She was a good kid and a good earner. I would be sorry to see her go, but I was glad she had herself a home that she wanted to see again, a place where she could lie on the dirt and stare up at a sky that felt like hers, a place where she knew the smells and the shapes and the sounds.
2: Ten to doors.
4: I put the bronze box back into the top drawer of my desk. I always like to do one last walkthrough of the place before the glittering masses start pouring through those front doors. Some might call me particular. In fact, plenty have. But I had a vision when I set out to create Solomay's and every night I wanna make sure it's realized. The curtains are heavy custom-made velvet jobs and should hang straight Pristine in their garnet sheen when the first guests walk in. The Asterian oak of the tables and bar polished to a mirror shine, the musicians already tuned, and the wait staff at their stations. Top buttons done, cuffs linked, and pleats sharp enough to shave with. I don't worry about the rooms or the kids upstairs. They're Zara's problem. She hasn't let me down yet.
1: Ten
2: minutes! Street lights on!
4: At ten minutes to opening, we flip on the lights outside the bar, Salome's, in neon pink, right off the main street of the stockyards. Can't miss it. The rising commotion outside the door would tell me that the lights just went on, even if Darius hadn't bothered to announce it. There's always a line that forms outside before we open each night, mainly sightseers and traveling businessmen at this hour. The townies and regulars know to come later in the evening, after the tourists have had their fun and return to the safety of their rented rooms for the night. My walkthrough of the place shows everything to be in order. The women in evening gowns and men in suits and other finery tell me that Zara has most of the courtesans on the floor already. Except, of course, Cherry. Zee's probably planning some sort of grand entrance for the poor girl an hour after her own party starts, so while a bar full of people suck down her favorite champagne, Cherry Cordial will be stuck upstairs alone. Ah oh, well. She'll still have plenty of time to make a night of it before she has to make her boarding call in the morning.
2: Five amps a door, everyone. Five,
4: five, 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 five.
5: Almost that
4: time now. This is my second favorite moment of the day. The moment before the storm when the galaxy takes a breath and holds it. One last glance around tells me that everything is perfect. One last ritual, because all the unluckiest people I know refuse to bow to superstition. Winston is waiting at the bar as I walk up, two fingers of brown liquor in an icy rocks glass on the bar top in front of him.
5: What do you have for me tonight, Winston? My vindication, Mr. Stone, my long-overdue vindication.
4: I make a show of holding the drink up to the light, taking in its amber color, its clarity, before smelling at the contents. Winston, for his part, watches me through the inspection intently, an expectant grin tugging at the edges of his mouth. Finally, I take a ginger sip and let the slow burn of the bourbon roll over my tongue and then down my throat. I follow it with another, longer drink. While I savored the drink, I let my mind begin to wander. My hand found its way into my pocket, and I pulled out my old lighter. Flipping the lid open and closing it seemed to help the wheels turn a little smoother. Single malt, definitely from Asteria, Northern region, this cask was in a damp climate, I'd say. Okay, where do we stand? 20,000, I do believe. Then, 20,000 Kopex says this is Bastille bourbon. 10, maybe 12 years old.
5: Uh, (laughs) I just don't know how you do it, boss. I've been running this place a long time. Six years behind your bar, and I wasn't exactly new at this when I started. But i don't think a hundred more will get me closer to that palate of yours you got some kind of gift for whiskey
4: now oh, wouldn't my mother be proud if she could see me today i threw back the rest of the bourbon and thought of tapping my glass for another but i remembered i had one with cherry too and that would be three and i don't like to start the night that deep in i could start the night with three, even four if I chose, but after that I'd have to cool it until around midnight. No one trusts a barkeep who never touches his own booze, but there's nothing worse than one who swills himself right out of business. Besides, I needed to keep my head about me. A night at Salome's came with its own set of challenges that could rarely be predicted. I nodded to Winston, a salute to a vanquished opponent, and pocketed my lighter.
2: Doors! 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 Doors!
4: Doors! Doors! One by one, they passed the call from one end of Salome's to the other. Hosts, musicians, courtesans. It was a call to arms. A pledge of support. An acknowledgement of a solemn responsibility. We all needed to put on our public faces now. Time to box away any personal problems grudges or the day's dirty dealings in a shadowed place where they could fester until tomorrow morning because the crowd ambling through the front doors needed nothing less. I began my usual choreography, greeting new faces and welcoming back the sparse collection of early evening regulars when, speaking of personal problems, I saw Dietz slip in among the arrivals, looking like he hadn't slept in three full rotations. We have a dress code here at Salome's and a sign outside to announce it, cultural equivalent of coat and tie required. I don't want any vacationing schlub in a pair of shorts and sandals from IASA wandering in off the streets and expecting service. No, Salome's is a destination, not a dark hole in the wall dive bar where you wander in off the street. This station was well served on that front by any number of other establishments. I'd need to have a talk with the staff on the doors, because while I wasn't sure that Dietz could read it, Darius knew what that sign said, and somehow Dietz had made it into my bar regardless. He was dressed like one of the station's sanitation techs, though I know Dietz hadn't held any gainful employment in his adult life. The coveralls, typically a monochrome olive green, were frayed, and covered in a patchwork of mystery stains and a dozen hues. And he had a bulky, ugly knapsack over one arm. He jerked his head around, nakedly scanning the bar in a desperate need. He fixed his sunken eyes on me, put his head down, and charged in my direction, almost barreling over a young couple as he did it. When he got close enough, I could both see and smell that he'd been sweating heavily.
6: Stone! Stone! I need your help so bad. You gotta help.
4: Welcome to Salome's, partner. You look like you've had a tough one. You look like a three-day bender and smell like a five. Get out of my bar, Dietz.
6: No, no, no. I I can't. You gotta. I want to place a bet.
4: Well, sure. We've got the friendliest tables on the station. I don't blame you. You wanna gamble, Dietz? Go home, take a shower, and come back with you.
6: No, Stone. I want to place a bet on double zero. I need to.
4: He moved to pull the knapsack off of his shoulder. My eyes widened and I risked a glance around to see if we were holding undue attention. I didn't notice anyone staring but saw no need to tempt fate. I moved in and put my hand on his arm, stalling his move for the knapsack. No, whatever it is, no. Get out
6: of here. Please, Stone. You gotta let me place a bet. You'll be glad you did.
4: I should have just said no. Should have stuck to my principles and had Darius drag the riffraff out of my bar. I should have just walked away, leaving Dietz there with his knapsack in the middle of the bar until the station peacekeepers came and hauled him away. Things wouldn't have gone any better for Dietz that way, but I could have stayed out of it. There wouldn't have been nearly as much trouble It wouldn't have been nearly as much blood if I'd just put my foot down and demanded him out of the bar then and there. But I didn't. Instead, I said, stop it. You're making a scene. Stop it, Dietz. Look, just go sit at the bar, the far end of the room. Don't talk to anyone, have a drink, relax. I'll take care of some business and we'll talk soon, okay? He swallowed with a pained grimace, but ultimately, He nodded. Okay, Stone. Okay. Okay, then. I raised my hand in the air and caught Winston's eye behind the bar. Then I pointed to Dietz and held up two fingers. The hand signal said, give this gentleman two of whatever he would like, and the look in my eye said, keep him still and quiet. The way Winston nodded at me told me he had understood both messages. I'll be back soon.
6: Don't keep me waiting, Stone.
4: He readjusted the knapsack on his shoulder and moved towards the bar. Relieved, I put him on my six and made my way towards the largest group of new customers. The next twenty earth minutes passed uneventfully, if not quietly, as Salome started to breathe and hum to life. I walked the room, pressing flesh and kissing cheeks. I'm good at what I do, and what I am, first and foremost, is a host. And being a good host is an art like any other. But what Mozart did with a piano or Michelangelo did with marble, I do with handshakes and drinks on the house, dirty jokes and toothless flirting with old women. Sure, I sell liquor, food, sex. But people don't come here because of what I sell. They come here for what I provide. My art. Art is about the feeling it gives you, and at Solomay's I can make you feel whatever you need to feel. Important. Invisible. Beautiful. Brilliant. Young again. Old enough. Dangerous. Pure. Loved. That's what they came for, and they came to Solomon's from all over the nocturne. I told you that you couldn't get from one end of Aldfar to another without walking past my doors. And that's because if you were to take this station and cut it in half, you'd see that my bar is pretty much right at the center of the whole thing. As for the station itself, while it might have seemed out far to the folks who settled here after the Exodus, being the first station founded and still left standing meant that everyone pretty much spread from here. So now it's practically the center of the nocturne. So when you hear them call Salome's the bar at the center of the universe, that's what they mean. And you can see that reflected in the spectrum of souls that drink here and lose their money to me. I'm proud of that. Most of the other joints on the station are pretty specialized. They have to be. If your bar is in one of the Gaia Compact districts, that's gonna be your clientele. You're gonna see a lot of flowing fabrics, floral patterns, simple if revealing cuts in the wide though muted array of colors they favor on their planets and in the districts of the station they administer. On the other hand, if you set up shop in the parts of the station run by the AEL, then citizens of the After Earth League are gonna be your customers and you're gonna get real used to seeing people in waistcoats and corsets everything cut in rigid angles and dyed bold colors Mother Nature might not recognize or approve of. Shocking pinks, deep greens never seen in any forest, blues of every imaginable shade. Then of course, there's the Coalition of Independent Planets and Outposts, formerly known as the Confederation of Free Colonies, and they technically own the station, so most of the districts are still under their direct control. And you really can't predict, planet to planet, what those folks are going to look like. Now, if you read the IPN feeds, or you listen to the diplomats, or the textbooks, everybody gets along with everybody, and we all love each other in nocturne space. Yet somehow, despite all that, the fellas in the robes don't tend to wander the streets in the AEL districts, and you won't usually find girls in petticoats and bustles getting drunk in a GC watering hole, but they all come here. They poured in that night like every night, a mix of style and politics and humanity, some streaming toward the bar, some making a beeline for the band, plenty heading to try their luck at the tables. Like I said, I'm proud of that. It wasn't easy to build and it's not easy to maintain. Which is why after 20 minutes of working the room, doing my best impression of everything to everyone, it is with no small amount of frustration that I glance at the bar and see Dietz, pounding a ceaseless, arrhythmic beat on the bar in front of him, dripping sweat like a wet sponge and slowly increasing gravity and generally making my beautiful bar look like a stem den. He sees me glance in his direction and takes it for some kind of invitation because he moves to get up out of his chair and I can tell he's fixing the bolt for me was trying to wave him down in a fashion that would be noticeable enough for him to catch in his impaired state, but not so eye-catching that I'd get questions about it from anyone else. I was so focused on the shady little idiot that I didn't see the other guy coming up behind me.
2: Nolan!
4: If the booming voice wouldn't have been enough to grab my attention, the heavy mitt that crashed onto my shoulder was an ironclad insurance policy. I spun around and found myself staring into the sappy grin of Flynn Morgan. Morgan had been coming around Salome's pretty much since I opened the doors, even though he lived and worked squarely in one of the GC districts. He's a big fella, sandy blonde hair and a boyish face that looks like he never had a bad day. I don't keep much with friends. Employees and business partners usually fill my personal quota for human contact, and when they don't, I can find someone to waste away the evening hours with. But it was hard not to like Flynn. He could be loud, and he was never going to win awards for charm or eloquence. But he reminded me of a puppy, one of those big mongrels that can't navigate a bare floor without breaking your grandmother's crystal lamp, but you can't get mad at it because of those happy, stupid eyes. Flynn, wouldn't have expected you with the tourists. Let me get you a drink. I signaled to a passing waiter with brown hair and pointed at Flynn. The waiter nodded without breaking stride and trotted off towards the bar, where I could see Winston doing his best to placate Dietz.
2: Well, you know how it is, Tony. There's a party for my favorite gal leaving the station. You know I'm gonna come send her off proper. Uh, no, speaking of which, you think she might have time for one last jump before or later tonight when she's more, uh, popular?
4: You're the beating heart of romance, Morgan. Zara has her hidden away upstairs, but I might be able to get you past the guards. <laughs> You're a pal, Stoney. Don't
2: call me that. Damn, man. Nine years she's been here. Remember how she first got here, she wasn't even 20 yet? He to put her on the bar until she was old enough to get her license to, uh, you know. I remember. You know, even then, I thought that was good of you. Only been on the station a year myself at that point. But in that year, Josie's place, you know, up in the Starlight District, must have been busted two or three times for peddling under eight.
4: Well, Josie's ain't Salome's.
2: Well, Josie's wasn't the only place. Still isn't.
4: Those places aren't Salome's either. And she was worth the wait.
2: Uh, she was, Nolan. That she was.
4: The waiter came back with Flynn's drink. He took it and dropped two kopecks on the kid's tray. Chewy, I'd like you to take Mr. Morgan up to see Miss Zara. After that, Flynn, whether or not you see Cherry is pretty much up to Z. (laughs) Ain't you her boss? I am. But your impatience is not worth the hassle I have to put up with when I remind her of that. So, as usual, Zara calls the shots upstairs. I could. You could, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's a party, Morgan. Play nice. Show him the way, Chewy.
5: You got it, Mr. Stone.
2: Ah, I know the way. I'll show myself. I will take that drink, though.
4: Don't have too much fun, Morgan. This is Cherry's damn party. We're going to need her down here at some point. Morgan walked away, whiskey in hand and a lecherous gleam in his eye. Flynn Morgan wasn't in love with Cherry Cordial. But he'd never fallen out of lust for her, either. And that has a certain beauty of its own. Chewie waited until he was out of earshot, and then spoke
5: quietly. Hey, Mr. Stone, Winston says that guy at the bar is getting really antsy. He's trying to keep him calm, but he says- Ah, deets. Okay, let's
4: get this over with. Give me three minutes and send him up to my office. No, bring him up to my office.
5: Should I bring Darius and one of his guys along?
4: No, it won't be necessary. Dietz is too stupid to be dangerous. If he is dangerous, it's only because he's stupid. And that's not the kind of danger Darius and his guys are trained to handle. Just bring him up. I made my way up the stairs to my office and considered pouring another drink, but decided to hold off. Five M's later, the chime announced visitors, and my door opened to reveal Chewy standing there with Dietz, looking somehow both satisfied and desperate at the same time. He stepped into the room as Chewie retreated, glancing around furtively. I didn't like the way he was looking around because I couldn't tell if he was nervous and checking for threats or just deciding what he might be able to come back and steal later. Finally, he fixed me with a shaky gaze and an anemic grin. I could tell, he thought, projected confidence and power it was clear he'd had little to no experience with either sensation.
6: This is a nice office stone. I've never been up here before.
4: I know. I would have preferred to keep it that way. Let's get this over with before I have to have the carpets cleaned.
6: You don't gotta be like
4: that. I know, but it's a perk of the job, Dietz. You said you wanted to bet on double zero. What's the score?
6: Take a look at this.
4: He reached into the knapsack and produced a box. As soon as I saw it, I knew something was terribly wrong. The box was wooden, about a foot square. The wood was incredibly dark, perhaps mahogany, and something that looked like pearl was inlaid in a band around the top, near the hinged lid. There was a simple, though perfectly crafted, platinum latch on the front, holding it closed. I don't think I want to know where you got this.
6: I got it up behind no, me. No, I don't. I mean it. Don't tell me. Okay, okay. Shoot, Stone. You shouldn't be so jumpy. And this is me talking. I'll
4: save the jokes, Dietz. You'll never top the one genetics played on your face. Put it away.
6: But you ain't even seen the best part, Stone. Take a look at this.
4: He reached for the clasp, and a sudden sense of doom clenched its icy fist around my heart. I didn't know what was in the box. I didn't want to know, and that was all I needed to know. I'm no precog, and I don't go in much for stories about bad juju or guardian angels, but looking at that flat matte finish, I knew, I mean, I knew that if he opened that clasp and lifted that lid, that he'd let something dark and evil loose in my bar. Two minutes ago, I'd wanted this business to be concluded quickly. Because I didn't want Dietz in my bar or my office. Now there was an icy chunk of coal burning cold fire in my belly. And I wanted our business done just so
6: he put that thing away. No, don't. What's the matter, Stone? Ain't you even a little bit curious?
4: No. I'm not. Not even a little bit. So what are you looking for, a fence?
6: Exactly. Someone off station who can get a good price.
4: Okay. You looking for someone to buy it from you outright, or are you looking for a consignment arrangement?
6: Well, I was...
4: You don't know.
6: Ain't consignment when they sells it for as much as they can get?
4: Well, something like that. But you'll have to wait for it to be unloaded before you get your money.
6: No, I don't want that. I gotta get paid.
4: Okay. There's not a lot of people who'll handle something this hot, but...
6: How do you pro- know who will buy it if you don't even know what's inside?
4: I know all I need to know. Contraband, not weapons. Most likely chems, right? And if it's wrapped up in a package that nice, it ain't bathtub gin. So we're looking for someone who can handle hot and pricey without much notice. Now, you gonna let me finish? Go ahead, Stone. By all means. Good then. As I was saying, I pulled out my lighter and began working the lid again. The nebula's not exactly full of options, but I can give you the name of a guy on Plutus that can probably help you out. He's got a reputation for handling high-octane party favors, and he's fair with the pay. Knows his business, keeps it quiet. There's a passenger freighter heading to Plutus in three days, and the first mate's got an entrepreneurial streak. You can probably— No,
6: that's no good, Stone. No good at all. I gotta get rid of this stuff. Now. Tonight.
4: That's gonna cut down on your options, Dietz it's going to cost you more.
6: I don't care.
4: Well, now you're singing my song. And it's a lucky tune for both of us. I know of a ship leaving for Thalia in the morning. The captain seems willing to make a deal. He already agreed to ferry one of my girls home, and there's a guy planet side there who'll buy anything you're selling, regardless of the heat. But I'll tell you right now, he's a tougher negotiator than you are, and you're going to put more kopecks in his pocket than you take out. Now, you want the name?
6: What'll it cost
4: me? Well, that's the rub, isn't it? Two names, high-value merchandise, and a fire lit under the whole deal. I'm thinking a wager of 5,000. Do you have the money?
6: Yeah, I got it.
4: Well, how much of it do you have on? Before I even got the words out, Deets jammed a hand into the breast pocket on his ratty jumpsuit and came out with a fist stuffed with kopecks. Gold rims. I couldn't tell just how much, but one look told me it was way more than 5,000. If you want to keep that hand, put it back in your pocket, and when you pull it out again, it better be empty. He did as he was told. You know better, Dietz. Everybody knows better. You know, knock me over with a feather. I should know better, but I guess I'm just a curious cat. Where did you get 5,000 kopecks?
6: Same place I got the box.
4: What'd you do, Dietz? You toss a syndicate boss's house?
6: Nah. Truth is, if you really want to know, I rolled a guy. You rolled a guy? I rolled a guy. Charming and eloquent as he might have
4: been, Dietz wasn't the kind to be blessed with imagination or a sense of humor, or much more brain power than it took to keep his heart and lungs in a state of operation. Dietz had the type of eyes you see on a lot of sad sack thugs, cold enough to be malicious, but without the capacity for guile. Staring at me now, I was struck all at once by the certainty that he was telling the truth. And then, because he wasn't going to, I started thinking for both of us. You rolled a guy and got that box and whatever's in it and a stack of gold rims. Where was this?
6: By the docks. He was taking a leak in the alley. He should have picked a different alley. Was he alone? Well, I didn't see no one else with him. I didn't hear any objections when I... What else did he have on him, Dietz? I... What else did he have? A bag of
4: clothes, a sword, a gun, any kind of ID. No, just what I showed oh, no, you. no, 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 no. Was he wearing a waistcoat? How did you know that? Did you see him? What color? Was he wearing a black waistcoat?
6: Yeah, hey, Nolan, he wasn't a friend of yours, was he? I didn't mean no harm. Indeed, you idiot. You guy, cursed moron. Hey, don't get mad at me. Your friend was the one not paying any attention. He wasn't a friend of mine, jackass. No ID, no weapon, black coat. He was a pink. You robbed a courier pink. I don't think so. I mean, he didn't put up much of a fight, and you know how those guys are. He didn't put up much of a fight because you brained him from
4: behind when he was taking a leak, deets. No matter what the stories say, they're not demons. You got lucky, and you know it. What? That's why you're so dead set on getting this thing moved. You know they're going to come for you.
6: I just thought if you would just look at
4: the stuff. They're going to come for you, and they're not going to stop. That's what they do. That part of the story is real. And that's why they get paid what they do by the kind of people who hire them. Holy hells, Dietz. You didn't rob a syndicate mall. You robbed the syndicate. And you brought it to Solomay's No way Deal's off, Dietz Take your box and get out of my bar Now wait You heard me Pound sand before you bring your trouble here
6: They'll they will kill me, Norm You know they will You're right They'll kill me You gotta help me No, I really
4: don't, Dietz Good luck I have a feeling you'll need it
6: I'll pay more Ten thousand.
4: I should have taken him by the scruff of the collar and heaved him down the stairs to the dining room below. It would have caused a scene, sure, but it wouldn't have been anything that around on the house wouldn't have fixed. Two at the outside, and Dietz in that box would have been gone. Even as I stood there, screaming in my own mind at myself to think about the game I was dealing myself into, I could feel another part of me a part comprised entirely of greed and hubris begin spending the 10,000 kopecks. After all, the stage in the cabaret hall could use a refurbish. What I didn't know, of course, was that even if I had thrown Dietz and his box into the street at that moment, it wouldn't have made a difference. There would still have been all the blood, and by then it was as much my fault as Dietz's Ten thousand.
6: I'll pay. You just gotta help me.
4: Okay. Ten thousand. He reached back into his pocket, but to his credit, this time he caught himself. He gave me a look like a puppy caught staining the dining room carpet. All contrition.
6: I'll make the bet. Ten thousand. It'll be worth it. It's not all that much to pay when you think about it.
4: Ten thousand is a lot, Dietz. Plus, you gotta remember the captain's fee. The captain? Sure. You think he's running a charity?
6: Well, uh, what's he going to charge me?
4: I couldn't tell you. That's between you and him. But if I had to guess with the kind of heat you're looking to bring on his boat, I'd have at least another five ready to go. But I'm already paying you. For a name. For an introduction. He doesn't work for me, Dietz. But that's more than I've got. Then you better figure something out. And that's on you. Now, you can pay for the name or not, but I'm tired of you stinking up my office, and I'm tired of arguing with you about it. Make the call, Dietz. His jaw clenched, and I could almost hear the gears grinding in his head. I didn't envy the situation Dietz was finding himself in, but I didn't feel a whole lot of pity either. Dietz had bought and paid for this trouble on his own, and if he had the pinks after him, his choices were, at this point, to pay up or to take up the airlock long jump. Finally, his eyes took on a flat, resigned look that I didn't care for.
6: Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it.
4: Then go downstairs, order a drink at the bar, give it three minutes, and make your way casually to the tables. Place the bet on double zero. When you lose, you shrug, tip the croupier, and walk out the front door. You don't talk to anyone. You don't say anything. You clear? I'm clear. Now, while you're down there, drinking your drink, you're going to start to think about leaving without placing the bet. I wouldn't... Uh, Of course you would. Now, I'd wager that normally the temptation would be too much for you. You don't strike me as blessed with an abundance of willpower. But before you decide to screw me and walk out, do yourself a favor and think about the next move. I'll say your name to everyone I deal with. Forget finding a fence, you won't be able to buy zucchini at a vegetable stand. Your money won't spend, definitely not on the station, and I doubt on any world within a three week cruise. And when the pinks come, you won't be able to fight back or get away, and they'll come fast because I'll call them myself. You got me?
6: I said I wouldn't try to screw you like that. Answer my question.
4: Do you understand?
6: Yeah, all right. Yeah, I got it, you miserable prick.
4: Excellent. The fence on Thalia is named Pierce Helena. Your captain is Watts, sailing on the Coleridge before the station finishes its start-of-day rotation tomorrow.
6: Pierce Helena, Watts on Coleridge.
4: You got it. Now get out of my office. Go place a bet. Dietz walked out of my office, carrying that nightmare box with him, and I waited a respectable time before I followed him down to the floor. I could have used the time to have a drink, but instead I took advantage to wonder, not for the first time, why I ever took up this line of work. See, what you've got to understand is that the Nocturne Nebula is like a five-pound sack stuffed with 10 pounds of guys like Dietz. If you've got the eyes to see them, there's pissant thieves everywhere you look. Most steal stuff. A few get creative and steal things like information or people. But unless a guy like Dietz gets his grubby paws on a briefcase stuffed with Kopex, whatever he's got ain't much good to him unless he can find someone to buy it. The fact is that part's not too hard. But unless our scumbag thief is very careful, incredibly lucky, or uncommonly smart, the person they get to do that buying will usually get them caught. And these guys, usually stuck somewhere between amateur and idiot, are almost never smart, careful, or lucky. Now, depending on what system you're in, when you get caught moving stolen goods or contraband, the consequences can be severe. So these mooks are forever searching for that rarest of breeds, a criminal fence with good Kopecks and a good rep. Somewhere along the line, I got tired of them bringing their quest to my bar and the violence and drama that inevitably followed when someone was disappointed. I couldn't keep them out. So being the good hearted and well-connected soul that I am, I started making introductions. I don't buy and I don't sell. But for the right price, I can give you the name of someone who does. I tell myself, if I supplement what I make on the booze and the action in the upstairs rooms, who gets hurt? But the answer always comes in the form of the headache I get after conversations like the one I just had with Dietz. 20 m's later, I was downstairs and the party was in full swing. Dancing had spilled out of the lounge where Teddy and his boys were wailing away. I was doing my best to float among the chaos, being a calming presence to those getting too rowdy, and a cheerful one to anyone who was treading too close to sober. My headache had retreated to just behind my temples, where it was still pacing around with thudding, sulking steps like a disciplined toddler, but not with the ferocity it had in my office. Periodically, I'd glance at Winston at the bar, and he'd give me back a smile that told me tonight's receipts would be good. All in all, the evening had turned sharply upward since Dietz had left my office. In fact, it was during a relatively quiet moment where I was reflecting on how my mood had brightened without him around that I saw him sitting at the bar, smiling a stupid grin and waving for service. Sure enough, my spirits crashed down harder than a condor after a coronary. Luckily, my temper was rising fast enough to buoy me up. I took two steps towards Dietz and his head whipped in my direction. I can't deny a certain satisfaction at seeing that idiot grin slide off of where his chin would be if he'd had one. Suddenly, he didn't seem nearly as thirsty because he stopped waving for Winston's attention and spun on his heel toward the gaming tables, almost without the time to turn an ashen pail in between. Almost. I slowed my pace as he bolted for the door. Had he seriously not even been in to place the wager yet? Sure enough, I saw him move toward the roulette table, and I could see him where he stopped through the door. I stopped and the hubbub and noise of the dining room around me seemed a hundred light years away as I watched Dietz reach into his jacket and produce the stack of Kopecks I'd seen earlier. He licked his lips and put the stack down on the table before looking back up at me. We locked eyes. I couldn't see Abram at the wheel, but his voice carried back to me. Back up everyone! My man's feeling hot tonight! 10,000 on double zero. Partygoers around Dietz started poking one another and clapping each other on the backs like they'd accomplished something. Some patted Dietz on the shoulder, wishing him well, but he just stared at me. The sneer on his face, the smug contempt as he stared across my bar at me, knocked me cold. When we walked out of my office 20 M's ago, he was angry and desperate now he still clearly wasn't happy but i couldn't read the expression on his face something had happened before i had time to try to figure out what it was or to worry about it the clutch of folks closest to the high roller fell into a hush i couldn't see it but the wheel had started to spin all at once Dietz wasn't eyeballing me anymore he didn't wait for the ball to land, just stormed away from the table almost immediately. He just about bowled over two young ladies who'd been craning their necks to see over his shoulder. They squawked as they fell away from him, and from where I stood, I could hear the hushed, confused murmur as a room full of gamblers watched a guy who wasn't quite dressed for the place walk away from 10,000 Kopecks before his wager had even played out. If Dietz was aware of the stir he was causing, he didn't give any sign of it. He came around the table like he was on rails, not reacting at all to the mystified grins his fellow gamblers gave him. For a moment, he was moving towards me as he came through the door, but then he veered away, never breaking his stride. He pounded out of Solomay's, walking like a man who was just about to give in to the impulse to run. 35 red. Before I could process what I'd just seen, before I could decide whether I was amazed or infuriated, Flynn Morgan appeared at my elbow. Damn. What do you think happened there?
2: Because guess he decided he wasn't feeling as lucky as he thought he was.
4: No. Uh, no, I guess he wasn't. Well, whatever he's on, he didn't buy it here. That's the damnedest thing I ever saw. Have you ever see anything like that, Nolan? Someone just walk away, leaving that much money behind? No, I uh, can't say that I have. That's definitely really strange behavior. Damnedest thing I ever saw. Say, Morgan, weren't you keeping Cherry company? Oh,
2: uh, I lost track of her 45 M's ago. I've mean, seen her once or twice, but every time I do, she's getting hugged and sobbed over by a whole different crowd of people.
4: Well, not surprised. Last night, there's going to be a lot of folks who want to talk to her. Got to expect her to be popular. Ugh, ain't that the truth. Guess I'm not the only one who's going to miss her. Cherry Cordial's ears must have been burning, because as if on cue, a bellow came from near the bar, or more accurately, on top of it. While Winston did his best to work around her, Cherry Cordial was swaying on top of the bar, a flute of blue champagne in each hand. Her hair was mussed and there were tear tracks in her eye makeup, but her smile was wide and bright.
1: I'm going home! (laughs)
4: You gonna need some help getting her down from there? Yeah, I wouldn't say no, Flynn. Thanks. We actually managed to get Cherry on solid ground without too much fuss. Though by the way she was wobbling around, she might not have found it all that actually solid. From there, the night began to swell. The sound of the band ran along with the constant rattle of glassware, which flowed along with a thousand eddies of conversation into a torrent of noise and activity, a current that picked up everyone in the bar and ferried them carelessly onward. It was, I had to admit, a good party. Cherry disappeared quietly out the back halfway through, which I was told is some kind of Thalian tradition, though I wasn't told what the purpose was. After she was gone, People stopped drinking for cherry's sake and kept drinking for their own. Deep in the small hours, I reached a point where the river of noise and the army of friends and strangers were beginning to wear on me. I took a glance around the bar and decided the party could do without its host for a while. I managed to avoid getting pulled into any conversations along the way and walked into my office. It was dark, but it wasn't empty. I could make out a shape standing at my wet bar.
3: You want a drink, Nolan?
4: You don't have to make me a drink, see?
3: Oh, I know. I'm making me a drink, and I'm asking if you want one, because I got a gentle and giving heart.
4: And it's my booze anyway?
3: And it's your booze anyway. So? No, thanks. Suit yourself.
4: Zara turned back to the bar and pulled a rocks glass off the rack in the gloom of the light tossed in from outside the darkened office I watched her silhouette as she dropped ice cubes from the bucket into her glass She moved languidly like smoke in a still room It had been a long time since I'd looked at Z in that light. No pun intended but I was suddenly reminded why it wasn't surprising that I still got asked nearly constantly what it would cost to get her into one of the upstairs rooms, even though she hadn't been for hire in years. When I bought Salome's, Zara came in the deal. The place had been called Scheherazade's then, a seedy joint with a great location and a bad reputation, and Z split her time between working upstairs, which she said she liked, Working the bar, which she found boring, and in a locked office with the owner, which she never, ever talks about. Other than the bar stools and the mirrors in the lounge, Z was the only thing I kept. A few years later, I'd replaced both stools and mirrors, but Z's been by my side ever since. Judging by the receipts and the word of mouth, she was a talent on her back but it didn't take long to realize that her real gift was for people. She's never been what I'd call warm, but somehow she's got a knack. Every time you turned around, she was talking someone through a bout of homesickness or a flash of guilt or shame about the work brought on by memories of a religious father or a judgmental aunt. As I came to count on her more and more, She spent less and less time with the customers, while the other courtesans fought less, stayed longer, and earned more. Somewhere along the way, I agreed to let her use one of the rooms any time a notion took her fancy. Doesn't happen often, and she doesn't take Kopecks, but every so often a fellow will catch her eye in the bar. Tradition sprung up that it's bad luck to say no if Zara asks you upstairs. Not just because you're likely to piss off the young men and women who look up to her, but like I said, I've heard the lady's got skills. Never tested those rumors myself, though I can't deny I might've been curious once or twice. Much as I've come to count on her, I guess it wouldn't have been all that surprising if Zara and I had fallen in love years ago, but it was like the idea just never occurred to either one of us, and that kind of thing has a shelf life but she does love Salome's, maybe as much as I do. And that's enough to make her the most trusted friend I've had in my adult life, even if she is a mouthy pain in the ass. You know what, I will take that drink. Scotch? Please.
3: Mother's milk.
4: A mother was never this good to me. To your stars.
3: To your stars.
4: We sat for a few moments. The drinking was casual, but the quiet was committed. I knew that keeping a handle on things upstairs meant that Z had her own river of sound to navigate most nights. Slamming doors, creaking bed springs, and the ubiquitous groans and cries that come with practice of the trade. Add to that the drama that occasionally came when someone felt jilted or someone felt betrayed. It could be mystifying the ways hurt feelings, bruised egos, and unrealized expectations kept showing up in what should be, but never could be, such a simple arrangement. Cash for company. Like the old saying goes, you're just paying them to leave quietly, but it never seems to go quiet. So I know that Z values her golden moments of silence just as much as I do. And that's how I knew, no matter how casual she may have sounded, it wasn't a throwaway observation when she said,
3: So, some drama down at the tables tonight?
4: You heard about it.
3: Guy places a bet for 10000 and doesn't even stick around to see how it plays out? Yeah, people are chatting about it.
4: What are they saying?
3: Well, if you're asking if I heard anyone say... Hey, you don't suppose the owner uses a pointlessly contrived system where people have to make wagers at a roulette table instead of just paying for his help in their smuggling conspiracies like grown-ups? Then, no, I didn't hear anyone say that.
4: Well, good then.
3: Of course, if people keep walking away without bothering to wait for the winnings they never get, it's going to raise some eyebrows. People will figure out the table's rigged, And then they will be talking about how pointless your system is. What people? Well, me, me for one. I'll be saying it.
4: You will be saying it, because you're not saying it now.
3: Of course not. Drinking your booze and questioning how you do business at the same time. What kind of harpy do you take me for?
4: I don't pay you enough to answer that question both safely and honestly.
3: (laughs) No, you definitely don't.
4: Morgan was there. What? Flynn Morgan. He was standing beside me when Dietz walked out. He saw? Hell, everybody saw, he...
3: That's not great, Nolan. It'll
4: be all right.
3: Look, I know he's a friend of yours, but if he figures It'll out... It'll be
4: okay, I said. You know, he's not going to figure it out. And if he does, Flynn knows how the wheels turn on this station, as long as it's not in his backyard. Like you said, he's a friend. You want another? Hmm? You want another drink? Please. I collected her glass and made for the shelf. How was Cherry doing when she left?
3: I don't know, I I wasn't there. Things were busy upstairs. Cleo told me she got out fine.
4: You didn't go see her off?
3: Did I not just say I was busy?
4: I just would have figured. Cherry's been around a long time. I know you two got along pretty well. I figured you'd want to say goodbye.
3: We got along famously. I said my goodbyes earlier. I guess it's just part of the whole Thalion thing. Say goodbye at the beginning of the party so you don't have to do it at the end.
4: Was oh, that what that's about? So I gather. Well, how was she earlier?
3: Fine. I think she might have been a little disappointed by your bon voyage.
4: I gave her a decent bonus.
3: Oh, I heard. I think she was just expecting something else.
4: You think it's funny.
3: That all these kids get fixated on the idea of a so-long tumble with the boss? Yeah, I do. That's why I encourage it.
4: I assume you're kidding.
3: Assumption is a dangerous thing. You ever gonna give a girl her drink?
4: Here. To Cherry Cordial, I guess. Nolan. Yazzie.
3: To Cordelia Monroe.
4: Yeah. You're right. To Cordelia Monroe.
3: Cordelia Monroe.
4: We didn't speak again. Just sat together alone in the darkness, sipping scotch better than anything we served downstairs. When her drink was gone, Z got up, placed her glass on the bar, and walked out without saying a word. Gone to see what fires had sprung up in her absence that she now needed to put out. I wasn't far behind her. The evening had been a good one, in spite of the party I hadn't been inclined to throw and the visit from Dietz. I'd even managed to shake the headache eventually. The next couple of hours passed uneventfully as more and more of the crowd ebbed away. Teddy and his boys packed away their instruments and Winston sounded the last call. Shadows melted away from clandestine corners as the cleaning lights got turned on and chairs made their way to tabletops. Zara and Darius made their patrol upstairs to chase out anyone who hadn't woken from their post-coital naps. One of the younger servers brought the cash box from the bar, along with a message from Winston. All eight cases of the Innocent champagne from the downstairs bar were gone. This was gonna go down as one of the better money-making nights in Salome's history. I opened the box and began to count out the Kopecks, once again thinking of Cherry, this time with thanks, when the call came from downstairs. I told you, the moment when they open the doors is the second best part of my day. The best part, without a doubt, is the part where we close them. When the last hanger on is shuffled out and all the bottles are corked, when the glasses are taken away to be scrubbed and the cards are all shuffled one last time before being locked away until tomorrow night. As from one end of this station to the other, most folks are crawling out of bed to start another day. I like to see the bartenders, the servers, the courtesans with that heaviness in their steps, saying they'd exchange the heady energy of potential with the satisfying weariness of achievement. Every time they called doors closed throughout the bar, it meant we won. For another night, we had together created something magical, something beautiful in a universe that had given over to ugliness a long time ago. Where other joints offered nothing more than booze or sex, at Salome's we provided an experience It wasn't easy, and a lot of folks could never appreciate it. But that doesn't make the satisfaction any less sweet when we pull it off. And we pull it off seven nights a week.
1: Doors closed!
4: Doors closed! Doors closed! Doors closed! Doors closed! closed. The smile on my face faltered a little bit when I didn't hear Darius sending back the final clear. The moment stretched, distorting into an eternity you could measure with a stopwatch. I had just turned my head toward my office door when it came from below. Before I even realized what was happening, I was on my feet and racing around my desk, pounding for the office door. I burst out of the room and cast my gaze around wildly. I didn't see anything out of place except for the ashen, pale faces of my staff. Halfway down the stairs, I finally saw what they'd seen and it froze me in my tracks. Standing in the middle of the floor by herself, looking like she'd just wandered in out of force of habit, was Cherry Cordial. She was clutching at her hands and gazing around her with a stupid and sluggish daze. I couldn't be sure but I had a terrible feeling that the blood all over her face might explain that. Or maybe it was the blood all over the rest of her because Cherry was all but drenched in it. From where I stood, just raised above her, I could see a thick and tacky splotch of it where her neck met her shoulder and my stomach lurched. For her part, Cherry looked concerned, even mildly frightened but much less so than her friends and former co-workers who were now watching her drip gore onto the marble floors. Cherry? At hearing her name, she jumped like she'd been stung. Her eyes burned off their glassy pallor in less than an instant, and suddenly they were the frantic, darting eyes of a madwoman.
1: Nolan? Nolan, I think... they...
4: And that's when Cherry Cordial's eyes still frantic but again unseeing, rolled backwards. And she collapsed. A tiny blood-stained heap in the center of the dining room floor of the bar at the center of the universe.
0: from the Nocturne Nebula, episode one, The Bittersweet Goodbye, produced by Yabiam Music and Arts, directed by Dale Rasmussen, executive producers Carly Shorman and Mark Anderson, written by Carly Shorman and Dale Rasmussen, sound design and original music by Devin Morris, audio engineering by Devin Morris and Mark Anderson, Featuring Austin Campbell, Anna Caton, Nick Meza, Ashley Naftul, Brooks Cox, Jennifer Salazar, Amanda Sever, Brian McBurney, Christine Arp, Lance Mascarenas, Mark Anderson, and Dale Rasmussen. Tune in next week for another exciting installment of Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula.